The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading from Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. First Baptist Church of Crosby, hear the word of the Lord. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And all God's people said, Amen. May be seated. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and obey what you say here in this word. This is a supernatural thing, a thing that is above us, in our flesh. So we ask you to draw near and do it now. By your spirit, speak to us now through your word. We ask it for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Turn to your feet one more time, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We continue in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading this morning verse 1 through 6, Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Maybe see that. 
So as you will recall, the Apostle Paul is very much taken up with a mystery here. He began to pray for his friends there in Ephesus and realized that they might have concern over his imprisonment. And so he goes on this digression, reminding them of what has landed him in prison and how it's working towards their good, calling them not to lose heart over what he now suffers, which is to their glory. But in the middle of this, as I say, he's taken up with the idea of a mystery. As, I, as we discovered last week from Scripture, a mystery is not some puzzle for really smart people to solve, but rather it's a secret to be told. It's as though there were this impenetrable veil between man and God, between the creation and his creator. That God isn't some Sasquatch or Loch Ness monster that if we look hard enough and follow the clues, we could maybe just catch a glimpse, a blurry glimpse, but a glimpse nonetheless. That no, because God is so much higher and greater, further beyond even his own creation, had God not desired to make known himself, man would never know anything about him. This veil could not be pierced by the intellect of man alone. So this mystery that he speaks about it's a thing that God must reveal to man. And yet, once it's revealed, it's not just for the elite, not just for the special, that even the unlearned amongst men, once this revelation is made known to them by God, it becomes plain. Even the simplest man is able to understand it. And the Apostle Paul says that the way he has come to an understanding of this revelation was directly from God. You remember there he began his letter to the Galatians. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In this morning's text, as we consider the last part of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4, what we'll find there is he refers to it as the mystery of Christ. I believe that's the whole of what he's talking about here. This mystery that is wrapped up in Christ Jesus. Not only, though, is the mystery found in Christ himself as he is uniting all men together in one new man called the church. But there's a mystery that was revealed directly to him by the risen Savior, the mystery of Christ, belonging to Christ. So what Paul is saying to his friends there in Ephesus is, is that even though he's in prison, even though eventually he will lose his head, he will be martyred as a saint there in prison. He counts it as a grace, as a gift from God. Verse 7, he says, it is according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, he says, to me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given. You remember last week we talked about the fact that he views himself very much as a household manager of this grace. He's not meant to be a basin that just captures this unmerited goodness from God and uses it for himself, but rather he's to be a conduit, a steward of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's what verse 2 says. He views himself as a manager on behalf of another. He gets this directly from God himself. You remember when he spoke to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says that the Lord said to him, Paul, arise. You are my servant now, and I send you to the Gentiles for the express purpose that you would open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are being sanctified by me through faith. He says, this grace isn't just for your good, although, Paul, you will be blessed. 
You'll find joy in the midst of tremendous suffering. But I bestow this grace upon you for the sake of my chosen people. I've got people among the Gentiles. And I'm going to use you to call those in to my kingdom. So Paul is looking to the saints here in Ephesus, the recipients of this grace and of his ministry. And he says, you saints in Ephesus, you've heard of this stewardship. Of course, you're well aware of this stewardship of God's grace. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now, a literal translation there from the Greek would say, as I've written beforehand briefly. What Paul's saying is, I've written about this somewhere else. This is not the first time that I've made reference of this mystery that's now being revealed to me and passed on to you. So a good question we might ask is, when? When is the Apostle Paul saying that he's previously written about this thing? Some people have taken this to believe that, to mean that Paul has written some previous letter to the Ephesians that is not recorded for us in the canon of Scripture. That's per perfectly possible. Paul certainly wrote a lot of things, but the reality is that we don't have any manuscripts of such a letter, and there's no reference to it here in his, his letter to the Ephesians. So other people have thought, well, perhaps what he's making reference to then is his letter to the Colossians. You remember that from prison there in Rome, Paul wrote both to the Colossians and to the Ephesians, and it seems as though both of those letters came to the region by the hand of the same man, Tychicus. And we know that these letters, they, they, appear, to have a, um, they appear to have with them instruction that they're to be read amongst the various churches in the region. We see this expressly laid out in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 4.16 says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Some people have said that this letter to the Laodiceans is actually the letter to the Ephesians that we read now. But the point is that the letters would have come to one church. They would have read it within the hearing of the congregation. And then they would have passed this news from Paul on to the other churches. And we know that there's some parallels. There's a lot of parallels between the Colossians and the Ephesian letter. How often have you found me referencing something there? A direct parallel. Talk about the mystery of Christ. Talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so perhaps what Paul means is, you've read the letter to the Laodiceans or to the Colossians, and you've heard me speak briefly about this mystery there. Maybe. But it seems more likely to me that what Paul's pointing back to is something that he's briefly referenced here in this letter right now. Now this is Paul's pattern. He will repeat himself often throughout his letters. Think about his letter to the Philippians. He gets to the third chapter in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 3 verse 1, and he says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, Paul has spent the first two chapters talking about his own joy in the midst of suffering, calling them to find joy in the midst of suffering. He comes to verse 3 and he says, hey, by the way, have I told you? Rejoice in the Lord. It's no problem for me to repeat this to you. As a matter of fact, Paul delights in recounting these stories. I was thinking about it as I was considering the joy that it brings Paul to continue to tell these things to his people. I was thinking about how I love to reveal secrets. I think about whenever we surprised my girls with a dog. Years ago, we had said we were never going to get another dog, and I took it upon myself to get a dog. And so I'll never forget as we had taken the girls all the way up to Weatherford, Texas, and they didn't know why we were going, and we finally revealed to them we're here to 
to give you a dog. We purchased a dog. We're here to pick up the dog and to carry him home. I remember the joy as we sat around supper that night and I told them all the parts that went into the secret, all the phone calls I made, all the decisions I had to consider, how long it took me to break this news to mom, where the money came from. It gave me joy to reveal to them the mystery, the secret that was once hidden that's now revealed. And so it seems as though Paul is a spiritual father. He delights in this kind of thing. He says, more than this, not only is it not a burden for me to repeat myself, it's for your good. It's safe for you. Because Paul knows, what every good teacher knows, that repetition is essential. Part of what I do every Lord's Day as we gather together, as I circle back and I pick up those key pieces from last week's message. I don't just do this because there's some of you that may have been absent last week, and I want you to have the context Because we work verse by verse through the Bible, I want you to have the flow of the argument. I want you to understand the context that God didn't just drop this particular verse in a a fortune cookie soundbite. But more than this, I know that we need repetition, that our memories fade. Even as we sit in the room, the reality is that there are times when you don't hear what I'm saying to you, either because of distraction or because of your own heart. Your mind maybe wanders, and so repetition is good. It's necessary for the human mind. So he's saying, it's not a burden for me to write this to you again. It's for your good. He says here in Ephesians, as I have written briefly. So as we look back to the letter, we ask, where else has he written about this mystery? We know in verse 9 of chapter 1 that he mentions the mystery of God's will very broadly. The mystery of God's will in uniting all things under Christ Jesus as Lord. But we, we know specifically that he has something a little more A little more specific in mind here with this particular mystery, it's the full inclusion of the Gentiles. And so surely what Paul's talking about is everything that we just read in chapter two, verse 11, all the way down through verse 22 about remembering where we once were alienated, alienated and exiled and cut off from God and without hope in the world and how in Christ Jesus, God has torn the veil. He has broken down the wall. He has made a way of full inclusion for the Gentiles. He says, there's no problem for me to write this to you again, as I've written briefly. So I have a question for you. I don't know how long my voice is going to hold out this morning, so I want to pose this question now. Do you think that the Apostle Paul knew that he was writing Holy Scripture? Did the Apostle Paul, as he was writing to these saints in Ephesus, this letter, Do you think he ever in his wildest dreams imagined that a church in Crosby, Texas, 2,000 years later, would be pouring over it word for word? And before you answer, consider a couple of passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 36, where Paul is writing about the necessity of orderly corporate worship. He says, what is it from you? Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He says, no matter how spiritual you may be, no matter how gifted you may be, if any man thinks he is anything, his basis for holding on to this, his status amongst the church, his usefulness in the kingdom is tied to his recognition of the authority of the word that I now preach. 
I speak to you now an authoritative command from the Lord as his apostle, as one who has been set apart and called and gifted for this very purpose. If anyone rejects this word, he proves himself to be unspiritual and false. Consider 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Again, the words of Paul. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. This word that we wrote to you, we thank God that you received it as it is, not the words of men, but the word of God. Consider the words of the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. What does he say at the end of the book of Revelation? If anyone adds to these words, he says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. These words that I write to you now, not only the thoughts, not only the ideas, not only the pictures, the very words that I record, so sacred are they, so authoritative are they, you prove yourself to be damned if you remove or seek to add to them. 2 Peter 3.15. The Apostle Peter is now writing about his beloved brother Paul, which I love, considering some of the conflicts we've read that the two brothers had had in Scripture. But he writes about the letters of our beloved brother Paul. And he says, 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in them which are hard to understand. Does that make you feel better? Peter says there's some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He doesn't say they twist Paul's words just like they twist the scriptures. They say, he says they twist Paul's words just as they do all the other scriptures. Now we know that in the first century, to the Christian mind, the first century Christian mind, that the scriptures most often referred to the Tanakh, to the law, to the prophets, to the writings of the Hebrew Bible. And I want you to consider for a moment Jesus Christ's relationship to the scriptures. I want you to think about how often he would say to men, have you not read in the scriptures? Anytime there was a dispute or there was confusion or there was sin in the life of the man standing across from him, Jesus Christ seems to believe there's a scripture that has settled this. The word of God is authoritative. These scriptures stand supreme over anything else. All answers we need to know about the question at hand, they're found here in the scriptures. Because he knows that it's in the scriptures where God himself speaks. I want you to think about the question of divorce. There in Matthew 19, they thought they were going to trip Jesus up and they came and they asked him, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now we know, even standing 2,000 years later, that there are two major traditions. The tradition of Shammai and the tradition of Hillel. You probably remember the sermon series there. But Jesus doesn't say, let me show you which tradition is right. Let me show you which interpretation is right. What does he say? Matthew 19, 4. Have you not read? Have you not read? Assuming there's an answer here in this word, that's the authoritative answer. That settles it. And oh, that men would hold to this. The word says it. This is where the debate is settled, not in the traditions of men. 
Not in the arguments of men. Now, yes, there's effort required for understanding what this word says, but the answer is here. We come here to settle the issue at hand. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate it. God said it, that settles it. But I need to draw your attention to something. I hadn't seen this on my own until Kevin DeYoung pointed it out. And once he saw it, it's beautiful. Look at verse five there. Look in your own Bible, Matthew 19. Turn to Matthew 19 and look at verse five. says there have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female who is he that created them in the beginning male and female Yahweh God the creator of all things right verse 5 he said who's he said God Yahweh therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh now turn back to Genesis 2 24 where he just quoted from We have God presenting to the man, woman, and we have the first ever love song. Write this at last. You don't want to hear me singing on a regular day. You don't want to hear me singing today. He's overwhelmed by the beauty of this woman. Verse 24. Do you see any quotation marks there? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Whose words are those? Moses' words. That's Moses' commentary. That's part of the narrative here in the book of Genesis. But what Jesus is saying is, God said those words. Do you see it? This is the word of God. Through Moses, yes. But it is the word of God, and that's what settles the debate. That's what settles every debate. It is the word of God. That's the way that Jesus related to the scripture, that this is the very voice of God. What did Jesus say there in the wilderness as he was tempted? By the enemy. It shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from where? The mouth of God. I was reading through some various works by men, current men, that pointed me back to some of the works of the, um, of the Puritans of a, a day, day gone past. And they, they pointed me to the reality that there was a time when men used to refer to this thing I hold in my hand is the mouth of God. This word that has come forth from the mouth of God. Or as Paul will later refer to it when he speaks to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that this is a word, all scripture, all scripture, Paul's words, the Old Testament scripture, that all scripture is breathed out by God. Now some translations just have that inspired by God. And if we're not careful, we can read that to mean that men have written some words and that God comes along and he does something with these ordinary words to inspire us or to somehow bring them to life. But it misses the whole point. And what's actually happened is the same God who breathed stars into existence, 
The same God who breathed life into that very first man, he has breathed these words unto us. These are God-breathed words from his mouth. Theanustas is the word that's used there. Theos means God. These are God-breathed words. The second half to that word points to the Spirit of God. It's by the very Spirit of God that he brings these words. That's exactly what Peter says. 2 Peter 1.9, he says, Know this, first of all, excuse me, 19. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This wasn't a dictation machine. I don't think that the men's eyes, eyes rolled back in their heads and they didn't know what was happening. God worked through their personalities. There's a difference in the way that John writes and the way that Paul writes and the way that Peter writes. Moses wrote different from King David, but they were carried along like a ship at sea. That the thrust behind their writing, the one who was giving them the very words they spoke. Again, not just the pictures, not just the thoughts, not just the large ideas, but the very words that they spoke. They came along from the Spirit of God. If all this be true, then I can say with absolute assurance that the Apostle Paul knew what he was writing was sacred scripture. And beyond this, I can say with absolute assurance that there's perhaps no greater blessing in all the world than to have a copy of these sacred scriptures in our own language. Have access to the mouth of God. Now, very few Christians would deny that. The reality is very few, well, we're getting more so by the day, but for the most part, most Orthodox Christians, they're not going to deny the inerrancy of Scripture, or the, the authority of Scripture, or the, the fact that this thing that we hold in our, work, in our hands, it really is the Word of God. But where the rubber meets the road is when we watch the way that they handle it. We watch the way that they deal with it. That's why we work verse by verse, not just verse by verse, word by word through the sacred Scriptures. Because every word is precious, not just the ideas. Not just the thoughts. Every jot and every tittle, as Jesus himself would say. Every single mark, it matters. And so we devote ourselves to digging and studying because we know how very precious and holy it is. Inerrant, can God err? Infallible, can God fall? Authoritative and sufficient. Sufficient for all that we need to know regarding life and godliness. That it's in this word that God reveals his mysteries to us. It's in the word. And would you look at what he says here at the beginning of verse 4? Because what good is a written word? What good is a spoken word if it's not received? He says, as this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, he says, when you read this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, I'm convinced that he knew that men would be reading this outside of the bounds of Ephesus, outside his own lifetime. But he's saying, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This word insight here is not found a whole lot of places in the New Testament, but one place it is found is when Jesus was in the temple as a young boy. And everyone was amazed 
and his understanding of the scriptures. Paul says this same Christ has revealed these mysteries to me. And when you read my word, you can perceive my insight. He's not saying you can look and go, oh, wow, Paul's really smart. He's saying you yourself can have understanding. You yourself can have perception. Most translations have it instead of perceive, understand. You yourself can understand my insight when you read these words. It comes when you read, not when you observe nature. Not when you contemplate the universe, not even when you gather in this place to sing songs of praise. It's when you read, you can gain understanding. Now, I've heard from countless people that say, you know, but I'm just not a good reader. I'll ask them, are you reading your Bible? Pretty basic question. Are you reading your Bible? They say, I just don't get anything out of it. I'm not a good reader. And I understand this. Reading is a learned skill. Well, we have schools. You must learn to read. And it comes more naturally to some people than to other people, as do all spiritual disciplines. As does prayer. As does Christian charity. As does proper worship. As does any other manner of things that come to the Christian life. All of which we would look to the Christian and say, you're obligated by God and for your own good to learn to do this thing. To read. The question really comes down to, what do you actually believe about the word of God? Do you believe this is the mouth of God? Do you believe it is sufficient and authoritative that the words of life and godliness are found here? And is it it important to you to possess any of those things? Because the reality is that many of the people that I encounter that say, I have no ability to read the scriptures. They have no problem spending countless hours learning new languages, new processes, new skills for work or for recreation or to impress a girl. But they come to this and they act as though it's something that's just incomprehensible. And and, and oftentimes it'll be masked in this False humility. You know, we can't make these absolute statements about God because God can't be contained by language. I referenced that some last week. That the, the finite cannot contain the infinite. You can't have a bunch of propositional phrases that tell you any real truth about God. Beloved, I would remind you that when the God of the universe most desired to reveal himself, he came in human form. If he can do that, he can speak to you through human language. No, we will not ever know God exhaustively, but we can know him truly. We can know him rightly. And this God who is, is chosen to reveal himself through language. All throughout the garden, how is he speaking to Adam and Eve? Through words. And there was never confusion, was there? Until the first question God asked. And who asked the first question of God's word? Who sought to first interpret God's word on his own? But the serpent, has God really said? Surely he didn't thus mean. No, man can understand the word of God because the power is in the word. What does he say in Isaiah 55? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, they do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it. God says the working is in the word. The power is in the word. When Paul praises the Thessalonians for receiving the word that he had sent to them as the word of God, he says that it is now at work within you believers. The word does the work. And I believe that's perhaps why so many men are afraid to receive this word. Because the word will work upon you. Sharper than a double-edged sword, living and active. Able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. For many people, the reason why they are willing to learn all the different languages and all the different towns of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or some other faraway world. But they say that coming to this word and reading some stories and reading the law and reading the gospel of Jesus Christ from 2,000 years ago is a bridge too far. So often it's because when they stand before this word, they find themselves dissected. They find themselves operated upon. It can be an incredibly uncomfortable thing. As this word cuts. It cuts that it may heal, but it cuts nonetheless. So what Paul is saying to those of you that are reticent to read his word, that are somehow believing that you're the one Christian that has not been empowered to read this word, he says, when you read this, you can. Dynamis is the word for can. You remember back when we were reading through that power of the power of the power of Christ. Dynamis is one of those words. You have the ability. You can understand. You can perceive. You can come to insight into these mysteries. And again, if you think about the people to whom Paul was writing, these weren't scholars. There were no seminaries to attend yet. Now, granted, we do have some hurdles that they didn't. Linguistically, geographically, historically. This thing was written in a particular context. And part of our job is to understand it in that context. And certainly those are some hurdles. But these men were not any more learned. They certainly didn't have any more tools at their disposal than we do. And he said to them, as he says to us, you can understand this. There's a fancy theological word for this. It's the perspicuity of scripture. I asked the staff this week if any of them knew that word. None of them did. Well, you leave it up to theologians, right? All it means is the clarity of scripture. What do theologians do? They take a simple word like clarity and they make it into a difficult word like perspicuity. You might write it down and look it up. It's spelled P-E-R-spicuity. It's the clarity, the understandability of Scripture. You see, so many men for so long, they've treated this word as though it was, it was mysterical, mysterious. Not a, not a secret that's being told, but like we've got to apply these hyper-spiritual understandings to every word to, to suck out some real meaning. It can't possibly mean what it actually says. But that's not the way that Scripture speaks of itself. It's not the way that our confession speaks of it. The London Baptist Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 7, says this. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Remember what Peter said about Paul. Listen, not all passages are equally clear. Many of them require much work and digging and study. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to the sufficient understanding of them. Amen. This doesn't do, he says ordinary means, the teaching of the gospel, this is appropriate. 
What did Paul say to Timothy? He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, and to the teaching. What do we read about that young Jesus that was in the temple in Luke 2? It says that he grew in understanding. Your understanding, it grows with time. If you devote yourself to the study, what did we see in Nehemiah 8 as Ezra read the law? And the Levites went all throughout the people and they helped them to come to a clear understanding because there's a definite message in this text. There's a real meaning. It's not left up to all of us to apply whatever meaning we see to the text. Jesus says, have you not read? Assuming that there's a plain meaning to the text, that the author of the text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He meant this word to say something. and It's our job to come to an understanding of what it meant. Now, yes, because of space, because of time, because of weakness, because of our own sin, it's oftentimes a struggle. But the understanding is there to be had. The psalmist, Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Would you think about the way the Old Testament saints talked about the scriptures? What did Moses command his people in Deuteronomy 6, 6? God says that these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach them to your children. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and you've revealed them to who? To the children. That's why we do things the way that we do them around here. That's why our student ministry looks like no student ministry you'll find anywhere else. Our children's ministry looks like no children's ministry you'll find anywhere else because we don't believe that we're supposed to teach kids about the Bible. We believe we're supposed to teach kids the Bible. I want Lane to learn how to swing his sword. How to dig. How to struggle. There's value in the struggle. There's value in the sweat. There's value in the wrestling. We want to teach these children how to study for themselves. I want to look to Peyton and say, Peyton, you can understand this. You might only see a glimmer of something now, but it's there. The understanding is there to be had. That's why we're starting telos. Not just so they can read interesting books. Not just so they can learn how to diagram sentences. So they can learn how to come to this word and understand for themselves. Yes, there's value in the preacher. Yes, there's value in the teacher. Yes, we avail ourselves to the ordinary means. It's not me alone under a tree with the word of God. God has given us these helps. But beloved, God is saying you can understand this through real study. What do you think about what we do every single Sunday morning? What are we doing other than just coming to this word and believing? There's actually a message here that can be understood. It's intelligible. I don't apply my own thoughts to it. I don't bring some mystic understanding. We're diagramming sentences. We're understanding verbs. We're looking at connecting words. We're saying there's a flow of thought here that can be had, yes, with some work, but it's worth it because it's the mouth of God. That's all we do. And I believe that for so many people, the reason that they struggle so much in their Bible study is no one's ever looked at them and told them that. You can understand this word. 
otherwise what we're left with is nothing but a bunch of devotional reading. A bunch of Sunday school classes where we just sit around and go, what do you like to think this word might mean? Look, there's a place. One of my reading patterns, I will tell you, one of my reading patterns is I read 10 chapters a day and I just read them. I just read them. I just read through them. I'm not studying. That's not my study. I'm devotionally reading the word of God. That's fine. But there's got to be a place where I slow down and say, what do these words mean? What did they mean in their original context? What did the author mean for the original audience to understand? I've got to place myself in Ephesus as much as I am able before I then try to drag this word to Crosby, Texas. And he's saying you can get there. You can understand it. Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14 said, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven and bring it down to us, that we may hear and may do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. Saying you can understand this word. You don't need another to go beyond the sea. You don't need someone to go to heaven and bring it down for you. You are able. I need to wrap this up. But how can Paul say this so so confidently? Because listen, we know that there are men who are always arriving at knowledge but never coming to the truth. They're they're always always growing in, in, in some head knowledge, some intellectual knowledge of this word, but they're never really grasping the truth of the gospel. They're never really seeing the mystery of God's word here. So how can Paul look to these people and say, I know you can get this. How can I look to you as the saints in Crosby, Texas and say, you can understand this. It comes from remembering the one through whom this word came. Your homework for this week is to go read through John 14 and 15 and 16 and see all the times that Jesus said, another helper is coming. The spirit of truth is coming. He will give you my word. He will bring you to an understanding that if these words are breathed out by the very spirit of God, he can look then at the saints in Ephesus. The same saints about whom he said, and you also, when you believe the word of truth, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says the same spirit that breathed these words now lives in you. He will be your teacher. He will give you the understanding. He will bring you to the insight. That's the assurance. That for every Christian, Everyone who has been filled with the Spirit of God, given eyes to see and ears to hear, you can have understanding. So my hope for us, church, even as we come to the table and we see the Word, you've seen the Word a lot this morning. You've seen the Word. We're going to see the Word and taste the Word and touch the Word. But I pray that you recognize that it is in this Word that we make any sense of any of this. I pray that we never be a people who are negligent in our love for this word. Never be a people who make excuses for our dishonoring of this word by passing it off to others, to higher, to more learned people and substituting it with the thoughts of men. I pray that we'd be a people devoted to the word. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you that to some degree, Father, my 
boys held out this morning. Father, much more than this, I thank you for this word. I thank you that this word is enough. And Father, you are revealing yourself to us in it. That you have promised for your children that we would grow in understanding. So Father, help us. Help us to have a desire for your word. A hunger for your word. Help us to be a people devoted to your word. Father, again, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.